Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Dick Folk. You can find us on national.cc or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. There you are, and there you are online. What a joy it is to be here with you this weekend, and um, that's not a play on the theme of this series. This is a joy to be with you. This letter to the Philippians is the letter of joy, right? You've heard that for several weeks. My question is, where does joy live? What generates joy? I'd like to submit a couple of thoughts this weekend to speak to that in particular, but I want to start with a fun story, if I may. It was a few miles outside of Quito, Ecuador, some years ago, and it was the first time I'd had the privilege of being overseas with our son, Chris, and he was the inviter. He invited me to go with a buddy of his, Kirk, and Kirk invited his dad, and we flew into Quito, Ecuador, which is at 9,000 feet, so you're up there, you know, sucking molecules through your teeth, trying to get enough air, and... and uh, we were supposed to drive over the Andes to Guayaquil, which is on the coast, and they said, um, let's go see the butterflies. And I'm saying, butterflies, what are we doing? Well, they sucked me in. It was a, it was a bait and switch thing. And we get up there, and it's not butterflies. It's what they call a canopy tour. Do you know what a canopy tour is where you have zip lines, like in the jungle and places? But you're at 10,000 feet, and you're going over valleys that are hundreds of feet deep, and so this is how it kind of works. I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot. You're strapped into a harness. You clip on the cable for the pulley that slips over the high wire. You're ready to go. The last item is thick leather gloves, which are your brakes, okay? They explained it simply. Three sort of wiry Ecuadorian fellows would go first zinging through space on a spider web attached to another tree about 500 yards over there, landing on a wooden platform that looks like it came out of that story, Swiss Family Robinson, sort of patched together. I don't, this was not a high-tech operation. These guys had gone someplace, said, well, I think we'll do that at 10,000 feet, and so they did that. The signals, it was simple. It was just like this, because those guys who went first, they were supposed to catch you when you came in on that zip line. And the signals were simple. If on approach, we saw them waving us toward them, you're supposed to lean forward so you pick up speed so you're not left hanging 200 feet above the valley floor. And if we saw them pushing their hands toward us as if they were trying to shove a giant medicine ball toward us, that means you got to lean back on this to slow yourself down. And you've got these, these gloves, these thick leather gloves that are your brakes, right? And, and you got to focus... Because if you get going too fast, those, that cable just slice your fingers off and all that kind of stuff. So, but, but you have to focus, and that focusing will try the souls of men and women and large gibbons. I just want to say that, okay? But there was a moment, and it was the moment of stepping off the platform. Yes, you're attached to this little three-quarter inch cable, but there's a moment of stepping off and letting go that's an exhilarating and the scariest moment in the world. And I'm, I'm sharing these thoughts. I'm calling my thoughts this weekend, letting go. And things went, went quite well. The first two runs, there were 10 runs going back and forth across the valley. And then it started to rain, which is cooling, except that it negates the viability of those leather gloves that are your brakes. And so you have this. It starts pouring, and I'm coming down. I'm hanging on, and I, and I see through the... Through the pouring, I see these three Ecuadorian brothers, and they are doing this, sort of like leading Beethoven's fifth in triple time. They're doing this, and, this. and as I come in, I'm, 
some of you folks remember Joe DiMaggio back in the day. Well, you're too young. You don't remember him. But you're sliding into second base with your feet up, coming toward, and they're bailing out. And I'm saying this is not going to end well. But it did end well. And we all lived to zip another day. My thesis, my takeaway from that was letting go, stepping off, propelled me into joy. It was a joy, I mean, it was scared out of my mind half the time, but it, but it propelled me into joy. And chapter 2 of Philippians goes there. Chapter 2 of Philippians goes to joy that happens when you let go. Listen to how it reads. Now, the focus here in, in Philippians as a letter generally is fellowship. How do we do this together? How do we get along? How do we move the ball down the field? How do we, and each of, the, each of the parts of the letter has pieces like that to it. Philippians 2 reads like this. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any compassion, excuse me, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. That word if means in view of the fact. Therefore, in view of the fact that you have encouragement from being united, comfort from his love, so forth. This is a, this is a passage that's speaking about tender persuasion for people to be together. And essentially, when he gets down to that last phrase, being one in spirit, one of mind, he's saying, think one thing. One thing. Like I was focused coming down that zip line. I was thinking, God, don't let me die at 10,000 feet over this valley. But this is a much more positive thing than that. And then it goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I think this word empty is an interesting one. Empty pride, don't do anything coming from that vacuum. Don't do anything coming from that space where nothing good resides. But in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't consult your own interests only. Now, you, you read this passage, and he's saying, I want you to be together. I want you to think one thing. I don't want you just playing for your own advantage. Nobody can come to the end of that passage logically and say, wow, I wonder, uh, I wonder what Paul's trying to say there. That's so, uh, like, nuanced. No, no, no. He's doing, bam, he's doing that to you. And he's in your face, and he says this, do nothing out of vain Conceit. We sang the song tonight, nothing is better than you. That's a different use of the word nothing. But he's saying do, do no thing out of empty pride because it doesn't help you, it doesn't help them, it doesn't move the good news down the field. Nothing. Sometimes nothing is really something. Sometimes nothing is really something. So when you do nothing out of empty pride, Everybody wins. So, when I let go, what am I letting go of? This passage would suggest that, that I'm letting go of the need to be center stage. My father-in-law was a pastor for 37 years, and he said, you know, there are some folks who'll do anything if you give them a parade. He told me that. 
if you give him a parade. And I'm thinking, well, I'd like a parade, you know. You guys wouldn't go there, but I confess. I, just, you know, I, I went there. But think about it. From your earliest moments of birth, and you don't remember this, but in your first year, you're center stage, dude. You're center stage. Parents are sitting around watching your every move. Well, look, I think she just winked at me. No, no, she had a bug there. That's what happened. You know, it's better than watching TV. You're just watching your center stage. And, and little children pick that up in a hurry. And then they work center stage, right? And Paul's dream for his friends here at Philippi is don't be the front, don't be the center, don't be the focus. Simply be together. Work at being one. And of course, it's not simple. That's a huge thing. Anybody who's ever tried to do anything together knows that it takes a lot of communication, a lot of work. It, you know, I'm, I'm married, and Ruth's, some of Ruth's and my biggest challenges have been, so like, what color do we paint this room? I mean, just trying to get together on something is a huge challenge. And Paul speaks into that, and he says, I want you to work at being one. Why would he do that? Well, Jesus' words capture it perfectly when he says, by this will all men know that you follow me, that you're my disciples, if you love the lost. Doesn't say that. It says, by this will all men know that you're following me, if you love one another. This isn't in my notes, but some, sometimes I think about that, where Jesus sent out the 70 and the 72, two by two. Why did he send them? Is, like, is that the FBI buddy system? What is that? What's that about? I think it's about the message. It isn't that I can't tell you about Jesus on my own, but if the message is, look how they love one another, when you're two, it automatically gives the message. It automatically does that. I mean, from an American Western perspective, you say, why didn't he send those 72 to 72 different towns? Instead, he sent them to 36. That's not very efficient. Well, it's extremely efficient and effective if, in fact, the message is, look how they love one another. And Paul is keying off of that idea. So, I, I really love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the, in the paraphrase called The Message. Listen to how it, those verses read. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. That's joy. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Okay. Then Paul says, okay, here's the model. Verse 5 and 6 of chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind, mindset, as Christ Jesus who being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Face it, we live in a community where advantage is the name of the game. Jockeying for position is an art form, right? And it's not just in this community, it's in lots of communities. And Paul comes along and says, Look at Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So how would that God bring the message of supernatural deliverance 
to humans. I listened to Pastor Mark this evening say, I believe in the God who breaks chains. You stood right here just a few minutes ago and said that. Well, how do you, how do you get there if you're God? How do you get to that place? Well, apparently the advantaged person, i.e. God in this case, Jesus, identifies with, their, with our disadvantage. He comes to where we are to fix us where we are and don't let us, doesn't let us stay where we are. I want, to, I want you to meet a friend of mine. In, back in the 1970s, Floyd McClung was a Southern California guy. He was one of the foundational leaders in a group called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. They sent out young people around the world, tens of thousands of folks. And a uh, pastor mentioned last week that, that a woman came and had a prayer that she and her husband could go on a mission with YWAM. Well, he was one of the foundational leaders of that group. And in the 1970s, he felt called from his place of advantage to go to Afghanistan. Now, you need to understand, some of you are old enough to remember the hippie trail. The hippie trail was where you went and got dope in Amsterdam and followed the trail down through Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Iran, and ended up in Kabul or in Delhi in some junkie hotels and died of overdose. That's, that's how that worked. And so a lot of Western young people trying to find themselves, going all over the world with a backpack and a guitar strapped to their back, came down that hippie trail, and they had a tea house just off a street called Chicken Street in Kabul, and he would just sit there and learn how to connect with them and give them uh, joy, if you will. Um, he was, I, I don't know the, his exact height, but I think Floyd's 6'8". He's a big dude. And our kids, when he came to the church plant where we were in Urbana, Illinois, to speak, they started calling him Floyd McGiant. And Time Magazine did a piece on him, and they called him the seven-foot Chaucer innkeeper, seven-foot Chaucer of the hippie trail. Well... Floyd and I met again 40 years after the fact in Denver in 2015. And we were at a conference called Simply Jesus, and they said, well, those two guys are old. Why don't we invite them up and let them have a conversation and see, see what it looks like if you follow Jesus all those years besides looking like you do. You know, why don't we do that? And so we had this wonderful 30-minute conversation, and I just wanted to, to illustrate what it what it looks like or feels like to going from advantage to disadvantage to help, right? This is what one man's version sounds like. This is Floyd McClung in 2015. I've had the privilege for the last uh, 30 some years of working with people who have been uh, without power, yeah. people who have been uh, homeless, people who have run into various problems in life, some of them from great families, some of them from broken families. First uh, in Afghanistan, Sally and I spent three years there, and uh, it was a strange world for me. It was kind of ironical, but God took me, um, raised in a good home, never smoked dope, never got drunk, never done anything, and then put me into the world of young people who were um, suffering from all kinds of life-controlling problems out of pain, and taught me that uh, to be a friend, like I said, to really see people as people and to love them and go on a journey with them. Uh, we now, uh, we did that then from Afghanistan to Amsterdam for 18 years, then we sp spent a, a stretch in the States, and now we're back in uh, South Africa. We feel like this is our final stop on the journey. Geographically, we want to live the rest of our lives there. Uh, so we, we moved there nine years ago, and um, we started off just the two of us. We're part of a larger family or network called All Nations, but we felt like we just wanted to go to get into um, 
the, the spiritual center of gravity outside of the Western Hemisphere to get closer to the problems of the world that are non-Western and non-white and the spiritual strength of people in the non-Western world, if I can say it that way. I have a great sense of respect for what's happening in Africa and Asia and Latin America. I'd been in South America many times, um, South Africa, sorry, and I really wanted to, to go and live there, and I asked Sally to pray about it, and, and um, we, we did, and she did, and she felt okay about that, so we moved there nine years ago. So we just started walking in the streets of some of the poor communities. I was attracted to the University of Cape Town. It's one of the top universities in the world. It's very highly rated. But when I prayed, I felt like the Lord said, no, there are others doing that. I want you to go and walk with the poor. Um, so I started off doing that in, in a township called Masapumalele. Um, it was an informal squatter camp that just grew rapidly because people found a place to live. Uh, there's a huge migration from other African countries to South Africa because it's one of the strongest economies in Africa and because there's lots of jobs. And, but this has created huge problems in the urban areas where you just find tens and hundreds of thousands of people moving. So in Cape Town, a, a city of about four and a half million, we have, um, we have townships that are called, the, the official term is previously disadvantaged communities, but they're still very disadvantaged. So I could drive for 11 kilometers, eight miles, uh, and find a million people living in one-room shacks. That's just one touch of it. And so we started walking in those communities. And uh, actually, I started driving those communities because I was scared to death because the crime is very high. Mm. Um, but it's kind of hard to be able to really connect with people if you're doing drive-by blessings, you know, and you're not getting out of your car. <laughs> but I got out of the car, started walking, uh, just sitting with people, talking people, hearing their stories, trying to learn, trying to hear um, and connect with people and started sharing Jesus and people started coming to faith and we started faith communities, small, simple ones that weren't about money, weren't about education, weren't about um, a building, weren't about a sound system. It was just about uh, building a spiritual family and giving people some place where they could belong and they could be real. And, you know, if you're poor and you don't have enough money to even buy a Sunday outfit and, um, and you find people accept you and the church becomes family, Africa knows family. Um, they can do institutional church, but there's an attraction to being family. And so that's what we've done. We've just started families, spiritual families, and walked with people through their journeys in life. So... That's been my privilege for the last nine years. So when you listen to Floyd, there's a resonance in him. There's a, there's a joyousness in being in this desperate place. And, um, you know, he's a Southern Cal guy. He had all kinds of privilege. But, but what that statement about Jesus is, that what was his by right quality with God, he let it go in order to take the form of us, of humans, and part of letting go is letting go of what is mine by right. It's mine by right. And the, it, it's, it's interesting when you, when you read this in scripture. Um, I have this cool book that I brought with me. I, I wasn't going to bring it with me, but it's called Cities Then and Now. And uh, you can open it up. Here's, I just happened to turn to Jerusalem. And here's Jerusalem way back in ancient times like this. 
you, you can't see it from there, but trust me, there's a lot of vegetation around, not much city. And then you have this overlay and you take it away and there's the city today. And they just have overlays like that. And it's interesting because when you read scripture, it has that kind of overlay. For example, you, you hear just the basic part of it when you read John 1:14. The word became flesh, made his dwellings, dwelling among us. Just basic, right? Or Hebrews 12 then adds a little more. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of faith, for the joy, there it is, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So it adds a little bit more. It's one more overlay, okay? You say, well, like, what's the joy set before? Well, you, me. He looked down the years and says, there he is, there's that guy, Mark. There, there he is, there's Joel over there. We, we need to go for them. And so we're the joy set before him. But, it, but Hebrews is one more overlay. But you get to Philippians, and it really gets unpacked. Paul gets down to particulars on the, on the, tra- excuse me, on the trajectory. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. There's... Nothing again. Do nothing out of empty pride. And here's interesting because this, this phrase, nothing here in this text, literally says that he poured himself out. He, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. The Greek word is a word that, you know, I don't know many Greek words, but I know this one, kenosis. And theologians have had a heyday with this passage saying, well, if he empties himself out and he's God, will he still be God? You know, how does that work? How does that, how does that work? The, the idea is simply this. It's not that he's no longer deity or divine. It's that humanity comes to house deity in the person of Jesus. Jesus was bigger than the human form, but he, if, if I can say this, limited himself in, in order to come to us, advantaged to disadvantaged, so that we could know the joy that comes from following him and knowing the Father. It's interesting, there's one place in the Gospels on the, what they call the Mount of Transfiguration, whereas there this scene, Jesus takes Peter, James, John, goes up to this mountain, and it says, all of a sudden, he, his face is shining like the sun, and his clothes are all white, and, and Peter's overwhelmed. And so he just says, I really identify with Peter, because he just says whatever comes into his mind. He just speaks it right out there, and he says, Listen, you know, it was so glorious. The glory showed up, right? Some of the divine leaked out up on top of the mountain. He wasn't just a carpenter anymore. It just kind of, this may be bad theology, but I love the idea. And it just leaked out. And, uh, and Peter says, well, like, could I put up three tents for you fellas? Right? You know, that's something I would say. How do you put up a tent for the most high God? A little, how about a pup tent over here for Jehovah Jireh or something? You know, that's, so... Sometimes, I said this before, sometimes nothing is really something. Do nothing out of empty pride. Here's another time when nothing is really something because Jesus made himself nothing in order to come and be with us. And and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He went to the lowest place, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's interesting, obey, that verb in scripture is the verb to hear. He heard his father all the way to the cross. When we go the human route, when we go the human route, it leads one place. 
to suffering and pain. There's no one in this space, in the sound of my voice going around the world, who hasn't known some level of suffering, some way more than others. I haven't known much suffering, at least not much physical suffering, some emotional, some mental, some spiritual, but nothing compared to the rest of the world. I mean, there are whole nations around the world that are struggling justice, subsistence, and I haven't known that. Annie Johnson Flint was born in New Jersey, Christmas Eve, 1866. And uh, she was orphaned at six, adopted by a couple of folks, and orphaned again within a few years. When she was a teen, she, she contracted arthritis, or, or found she had arthritis, and it got worse and worse, and she ended up the rest of her life either in bed or in a wheelchair. And she could have gotten bitter. She could have just, but she found that she had a gift for words. And she started writing little cards, little greeting, like Hallmark type, you know, that sort of thing. And then it turned into other verses, sometimes poetry. And she handled suffering by putting her thoughts and her trust in the Most High to words. And sometimes it went to music. And can, can you see her there? sitting up in bed with the pillows piled behind her to try to ease the pain which she had chronically for over 50 years in her life. And she's got swollen fingers. Arthritis does that. Gnarls, can gnarl your hands. And she's writing with a pen or a pencil. And she wrote these words. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength. It's the old King James language. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And then the refrain, his, his love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. And the, the tune goes like this. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And he died in September of 1932 at 66 with no day in over 50 years without crippling pain. They called her an invalid, but she proved she was not, she was not invalid. Can I say that again? They called her an invalid, but she proved she was not invalid. Moving along, Paul gives us that wonderful closure to the trajectory, the other side where you go down and come back up. It's called death and resurrection, right? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a great place to end up. But let me come back for just a moment to the pivot point, which is the cross. Jesus came to the cross, it's true to deliver us, but he came to the cross to carry our burdens, I believe. Galatians 6.2 says it this way, Paul again, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus let go of his glory to handle our sins and suffering. And for me it comes together in one day, in one sort of 18 hour period. 
and that's the Passover week when he's on his way to the cross. They've had the meal. They go out to Gethsemane, and he curls up. I see him curled up in the fetal position. He's asked the, the two or three guys to come with him and pray, and they, they had a big meal, you know, and so they're taking a nap over here, and it says that he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, and he's talking to his father, and... Um, he says, Abba, Father, Papa, Papa, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Now, my thesis about communication, you've heard me talk about this before, is that good communication is telling the other person what you think, what you feel, and what you know, telling the truth about those three things, right? And here he's telling the Father what he feels about this moment. This is the human part of him showing up, if you will, however that works. Papa, if there's any way, take this cup from me. What I know is this, though, I can trust you. Nevertheless, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. Within hours, this is how it reads in Mark 15. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, sabachthani, excuse me which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very next thing, he says, essentially, is into your hands I commend my spirit. In that brutal moment, in that dark, suffocating moment, when the weight of the world and all of my sin and all of my junk weighs down on him, that's what he voices. My God, it's a feeling statement. Why have you forsaken me? I don't know if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who hasn't at some point felt some version of that. Where are you? I'm following. Where'd you go? I thought you were right here. And I, where'd you go? My God, why have you forsaken me? So here Jesus moves toward me, takes my burden, and he goes through necessary suffering for a particular outcome. The problem with that is the outcome Jesus died for isn't necessarily guaranteed. It doesn't mean just because he died for me that I will follow him, okay? And I can choose not to respond. We know what suffering's like. You hear Paul say this in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. When I suffer or when you whom I love suffer, my deal is this, I like to control the outcome. And when I carry someone else's burden, I really want to control the outcome. My wife Ruth has gone through several things with her heart over the last few years, and, and I've prayed, and I've done, and I really want to control that outcome. But this is what scriptures call me to. Scriptures call me to self-control, and beyond my control, that's on God. Scriptures call me to self-control. Beyond my control is on God. So how do I do deal with the things that boggle my mind? Things that we pray over, weep for, and there's no apparent resolution. What do we do with that? You say, how did you get here? Well, I'm talking about the God who let go of his advantage to come to our disadvantage. And our disadvantage includes suffering. Some of which we work through, some of which we find joy in, and some of which we just don't get, okay? I mean, what about that brain injury from birth? What about that auto crash or war or a condition not of somebody's making? 
Or what about sometimes it is their own making? Situations that shatter our mental capacity or sap our emotional, spiritual strength or addictions that crush our worlds or loneliness that takes us down the abyss and it whipsaws our personality. Ruth and I have friends and family who have struggled mightily. And what we found is that in a number of those cases, we can't fix it. We can't fix it. We've, we, I confess this, I shouted at God, where'd you go? Do you see this over here? We've wept into the pillow at night. So the question is, it hangs in there, how do I respond to that thing? I'm suggesting that we let go by trusting God with that thing. Let go by saying, God, that's on you. That's yours. And, and I can't fix it, and I need to trust you with it. Sometime back, Pastor Mark took a life plan thing. He wrote about it. You wrote about it in one of the books. And uh, the fellow who created that life plan was a fellow named Tom Patterson. He, in college at Stanford, patented the ATM technology and the pin and all that. And then he served as an executive with RCA and IBM and Disney, and he helped create Space Mountain. If you've ever been on that, that was Tom Patterson, right? A strong believer in Jesus. His 12-year-old daughter, Debbie, died of, of uh, bone cancer at 12. His son, Tom, 36, died in an airplane crash. His other son was killed in an auto accident. His wife, Ginny, at 54 years, died of cancer. His second wife, Meryl, had Alzheimer's. And I'm talking to him in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he's in his late 80s. And I said, Tom, how do you handle all of this suffering? How do you do that? And he looked at me, and his eyes welled up and said, surrender, Dick. Surrender is the response to suffering. I mean, again, hear it. Papa, if there's any way, Jesus says, take this away, that's the suffering statement. The surrender statement is, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The next day on the cross, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the suffering statement. The, the surrender statement is, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Let me come back to my friend Floyd, and then I'm done. Um, Nine months after that conversation, Floyd had a pain in his leg in South Africa. Turns out he got an infection that within two days put him in a coma. And for the next five years, three months, and six days, he was hospitalized, unable to speak, unable to move except his left arm, and he had what was called lockdown syndrome. And he passed away, went home to Jesus where there is no suffering, on May 29th, just a few weeks ago. I sent a note to his wife, Sally, this week, and she wrote back and said that, that her grief of five and a half years is still grief, even in the final moment of it. But she said, I need to say this. I must also add that sometimes when I visited him, five years worth in the hospital, when I visited him, it felt like I was on holy ground as the presence of the Lord was so real in his hospital room. I think it had to feel like that if you watched Annie Johnson Flint write words for a song. That's what I think. And he said he greatly impacted the hospital staff. Didn't say a word for five years of the hospital. How did he do that? They loved him dearly, and when he passed away, they kept his room open in his honor 
and to give the staff time to grieve. What is it about the Holy Spirit of God that works when words don't work? What is it about in our suffering moment where joy of some kind shows up? So the question is, okay, I want to surrender. How do I surrender? I asked several of my friends who had situations and people they loved where things weren't changing. And this is what they said. We need to understand we live in a broken world. Pain makes us focus. When we don't, when we don't understand, believe that God does. Lean hard on Jesus. Your enemy is fear. Stare it down. Where is the hope? In a good God. Joy comes in the morning and he will do what's right. So, can there be joy in suffering or in spite of suffering? I believe there can. Even in those spaces and places that I don't understand. And what I'd like to do in closing this weekend... I rarely do this, but I'm going to do it this time. And that is, there are a couple of folks that are very close to us in our family, and we have prayed forever. And the needle doesn't seem to move, or not what we can see anyway. And so, in this moment, I want to stand in proxy for those people, for those two people in our world. And I want to invite you here in this gathering place and online, wherever you are, if you have someone or some situation for whom you choose to stand in proxy, you've prayed forever and you're not going to stop, but at this moment in time, you're going to stand for them again. Just stand up with me, if you will. If you're online and you want to drop something in the chat room and say, I'm standing or I have somebody, we'll do that. And then I just, I would just like to, Gather us in prayer, if you will, for that. Here we are. Lord, you've heard our cry night after night, week after week. And we'll continue to do that. But at this moment in time, we are going to stand in the place of that person and identify with that one, that man, that woman, that family, that situation. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will move around the world into homes, to living rooms, into asylums, into prisons, on the street, under a bridge in Yemen, in that place on top of a building where someone's about to jump, that by your Holy Spirit, you will draw them inexorably to you, that they might know the joy that you bring, even at the point of their deepest suffering. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to suffer for us to bear our burdens so that we could be whole and free. We thank you for that this weekend. We are so grateful for that this weekend. Don't ever let us take it for granted. And as we are together in the kingdom, let us do nothing out of empty pride. 
but let's identify with you counting yourself nothing so that we could be somebody. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In this moment, in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen.